This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Among the biggest fans of Garth Brooks in Silicon Valley is well-known as Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook. Actually, I just made that up. Uh, but uh, Sarah Fryer, surely a big fan of Garth Brooks. Yes, Sarah? <laughs> yes. That's, that's still a uh, no. Of course. That's <laughs> uh, still a guess on my part. But she's a Bloomer Tech reporter. What's about the low places Facebook trolls and their armies uh, exist? Who are the Facebook troll armies? So uh, this is in reference to a story we wrote today about how Facebook works with government leaders, politicians around the world, they think of uh, these leaders as as influencers, the way they would see, you know, LeBron James or Kim Kardashian, people that they want to get posting on Facebook and doing it well. And Facebook goes out and they train these people. Um, it sometimes helps them get elected. And then you end up with uh, close ties to Duterte, to um, India's Prime Minister Modi, to people who end up using Facebook not in the best interests of their citizens. So, so Sarah, I I just want to understand this because I was talking about this earlier today as well. So the president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, uh, his campaign was using Facebook, but using Facebook in not just their own way, but being advised by Facebook employees how to use it better. The prime minister of India, Nahendra Modi, also being helped by Facebook to use it better to further his cause. The Scottish National Party also using it, as well as the alternative for Germany. They're not just using this by themselves, right? They're getting help specifically from Facebook employees. Right. So Facebook basically goes personally around the world. They send people to try to train these government officials. They've trained thousands of them in, in India, for example. And and sometimes, uh, you know, help them get elected. And after they get elected, stick around to help them uh, make sure that their events get live streamed, that they know how to use the latest and greatest Facebook tools. It has, ends up being basically... Uh, uh, a courtesy service for powerful people. And um, in light of what we've seen these leaders do with the platform, it certainly puts Facebook in the uncomfortable position of being very close with the people that, you know, maybe maybe the users of their platform wouldn't be so excited about how they're using it. Yeah, well, picking sides. Uh, in, in what way are they doing that, sort of helping Pixel? You say they're helping some of these these world leaders, some of these world leaders uh, are engaged in activities that, that uh, we don't like so much. Um, well, you know, what, what are they? What are they doing? So Facebook, above all, tries to be neutral, which means they'll work with people on both sides of an issue. They embedded with Trump's advertising campaign ahead of his election. They offered the same services to Hillary Clinton. Hillary turned it down. Um, what is neutral about Facebook's? Uh, outreach is that uh, it's basically available to anyone who has or is seeking power. Um, The company just wants to align itself with 
the users that will really boost engagement on their platform. They think their position is they're doing this to further a civic engagement. If people's leaders are on Facebook, then the people of Facebook can really see what's going on using Facebook to get their information. It sounds like this puts them in a position where they are sort of picking, for example, you said two sides. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's three sides. Sometimes the fourth oh, side they, is they the smallest the side. They go with the third and the fourth side, too. They worked with Gary Johnson for president as well. Um, this is something that – I mean the, th- the difference is you know, when you look at, at this kind of neutrality, the, it's neutral only, only in that it works with the powerful people. So it, you, know, you have countries like the Philippines where Duterte is getting all of this first-class treatment. Meanwhile, um, he has a, a populace of people who are joining the internet um, maybe you know, for the first time in some in some cases, and, and don't necessarily have the digital literacy to understand when they're being served up propaganda on Facebook, when you know things aren't aren't true, or when uh, you know, some of these these people are trying to stoke violence. It, there's a gap in knowledge about how to use the platform that Facebook has as accelerated by partnering with powerful people. Sarah, is Facebook registered as a foreign lobbyist or is it even covered by the election advertising rules and regulations that are in place in the United States? So Facebook, um, since 2011 in the United States, has argued that it should be exempt to the disclosure rules, the federal advertising disclosure rules that govern ads for campaigns on television and radio. Facebook after we, you know, you all know about what's happened with Russia and their use of the platform to try to influence people around the election. Now, Facebook says it's open to some kind of regulation. So there may be you know, the company says that it's going to start being more transparent about who pays for what ads. You're going to be able to click on an ad and see where the money's coming from, at least the page it's associated with. So um, they are trying to move in a, in a better direction. Honestly. The company overall sees itself as a tool, not as a political actor. Um, the problem is they're so powerful now, and and the company does not seem to know how to talk about their power or or come to terms with the effects of it in in situations like this where it, you know may seem like they're innocently helping anyone who who wants power, but in doing so, are empowering these leaders who who may not be the best for society. Well, we're going to have to see what happens. Any reaction from Facebook? Just quickly. <laughs> well, they, they say that they are still working out the kinks. Mm, yeah. All right. Well, uh, you'll be covering them, and we appreciate it. Sarah Fry, our Bloomberg News technology reporter on uh, Facebook, and it's a political uh, connections when it comes to advertising and uh, campaign information. Thank you very much. But what I really want to know is I go my way and I got to, got to know We got to know how this tactical is going to go our way or not. Mona Mahajan joins us right now, U.S. Investment Strangers with Allianz with a look at this uh, tax uh, uh, overhaul and uh, the outlook with the Fed as well. And uh, Mona, if I ask you what you like about the tax, you also have to tell me what you don't like about it. So do you want to go there? What do you, what do you like about this bill? Sure. You know, I think 
What we do like is that we do think it'll be incrementally positive for GDP. We're looking at maybe a quarter to, at most, uh, 50 basis points, incremental added to GDP over a long-run basis. Um, but we actually see a little bit more of that up front. So next year in particularly, in particular, it could be higher than that. So a GDP could, you know, estimates right now are saying 2.5%. We think it could be 25 to 2.7% next year because, one, the tax cut is not phased in as originally planned. And, two, the repatriation and, you know, the accelerated depreciation are actually going to be probably more front-end loaded. So this is uh, – it is going to have a positive benefit um, economically. Now, should we go the other way, too? Talk about yeah. – that was Those are the rules. Those are the rules in our that, game here. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, when we look at tax reform on a longer-term basis, you know, first of all, the one-and-a-half – trillion dollar, you know, add to deficit is something that is a red flag to us. Um, Generally, when, you know, we see these kind of deficit increases over the long term, uh, it crowds out productive investment. So the government, you know, rather than spending on, um, you know, productive uh, CapEx, productive investment, we'll be paying down debt. So that over time can uh, actually reduce growth. So instead of a trillion uh, so dollars going not to beneficial. a trillion dollars could have gone to lowering health care, or could have gone to paying debt, or could have gone to building uh, hospitals or schools or infrastructure or something, paying down student loans. Exactly. Yep. And now they're worrying about you know paying off their deficit. So. Adding, you know, this much to the deficit is long-term not beneficial to the economy. We're also kind of, you know, we're looking at the the inequality metrics, and there is a little bit of, you know, this may exacerbate some of the inequality and and heighten some of the populism we've seen just because, um, you know, some of some parts of the bill, such as, um, you know, the the AMT or the um, you know, looking at uh, when, you know, the, the death tax, quote unquote, getting a little bit better for the, the wealthier Americans. So we think that could be a little bit of an issue going down the road, too. And we'll have to see how it plays out for individuals, whether middle tax Americans do see a tax break or it's is it more um, skewed towards wealthier Americans and corporations in particular. So those are some of the things that we're kind of highlighting as concerns. Um, but, you know, generally, near term, we do see positive outcome for the tax bill. So it, it is a near term win for the Republicans. Lorna, if you could look into the future, where do you think rates will be a year from now? <laughs> well, you know, if I knew that, <laughs> I could be, uh, you know, wealthier myself. But we, we're actually calling for rates to rise in the, uh, next year. We think 2.75 to 3% is the range we're putting on it. Um, you know, we feel like inflationary pressures are building here and it, primarily driven by one, uh, unemployment rates moving downwards. You know, we're at 4.1% now. We are uh, looking at sub 4% unemployment rates. Right now, the wage growth that's associated with that has been okay. We're at about 2.5% year over year average hourly earnings. But, you know, we think that as unemployment goes down, we could see that wage growth really start to pick up. And that's really a driver for inflation and ultimately rates. Um, Other inflationary pressures include, you know, we've seen commodity prices rising. We've seen even Chinese inflation rising to, I think, five-year highs now. Um, The dollar has been a little soft. So there are, you know, broader inflationary pressures building. Um, The reason we're not, you know, pounding the table on 3% plus rates 
uh, for the tenure is because, you know, we do see the counter argument of, one, there are some structural shifts in, you know, the global economy. There's globalization. There's disruptive technologies. So employers now have options. They could um, use global workforce or they could use um, automation to help support some of their, you know, traditional employee functions. And, you know, there's also the global demand for rates that hunt for income globally. And, you know, as our yield starts to move upwards, uh, there will be, you know, uh, people around the globe looking to get involved, and that pushes down rates ultimately. So we think rates do move up towards that 2.75 to 3% range. Um, you know, the Fed will be in play next year as well. And uh, as we said, if, if tax reform does kind of start heating the economy up, especially year one, um, that could kind of put the Fed on alert as well. So, so um, as we look the at the, this, there. it sounds like a, uh, retail sales in the current holiday season are going to matter a lot to your GDP prediction. In this holiday season? Yeah, because it sort of sets the stage for what spending is going to happen going forward after that. Yeah, you know, I, I think retail sales this this holiday season, you know, I do think that if we get a strong number, that's going to, you know, create momentum. And I think we will get that over 3% GDP number, which, again, you know, the Fed will be watching all these numbers carefully, um, especially with a new Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, in place. He is not going to want to remain behind the curve in any way. Um, we think if he starts getting a sense that the economy is heating, like we said, he'll continue to normalize. Um, in his mind, you know, he's probably forward thinking and thinking if we ever do, you know, get a, into a downturn situation, he wants some tools in place. So he wants to be able to once again, you know, reduce Fed funds rate or, you know, maybe even um, increase balance sheet if needed. But so at this point, he's, you know, probably focused on normalization, watching retail sales, watching um, inflation, wage growth, all these figures very carefully. But, you know, retail sales will be interesting this quarter. I also think it'll be interesting to see what the consumer does next year with, you know, some of that tax tax savings. So, All right. We're going to leave it there. But thanks very much. Uh, we'll be watching what happens, of course, in 2018 uh, and uh, interest rate policy. Mona Mahajan, U.S. Investment Strategist for Allianz Global Investors. Shopping and e-commerce in emerging markets is an interesting uh, trend and a growing one at that, even maybe growing faster than even domestically. Kevin Carter joined us right now. He's founded an ETF, ticker EMQQ, an exchange-traded fund targeting emerging market internet e-commerce companies. Uh, Kevin rang the opening bell in New York Stock Exchange today and uh, joined us right now. Uh, Kevin, uh, was that fun? Ring the bell? Uh, it's always fun. Uh, You've done it before? I've done it before for a couple of our China ETFs that we did with Guggenheim, but it's, uh, it's a fun experience. Uh, uh, great stuff there. Well, so talk to me about this and, and why the world needs another ETF, this one in particular. Well, I think this one captures the greatest growth story of our lifetime, uh, as you uh, suggested. Uh, Bitcoin? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, that that's uh, subprime auto loans. That, n- no, uh, no. Uh, the emerging market consumer is a big deal. There's billions of people joining the consumption class, and just as the way we consume here has changed from traditional big box retailing to smartphone and deliveries. Uh, the same thing's happening uh, happening in emerging markets, but the only difference is there's a lot more of them, and they didn't have computers the way we've had. They haven't had access to the Internet the way we've had. So the smartphone, uh, mobile uh, broadband access, 
uh, is giving them access to products and services they've never had before, and they're leapfrogging uh, what we think of as con- uh, uh, traditional consumption. Kevin, uh, as you referenced, uh, having created ETFs in the past, uh, emerging market ETFs uh, in partnership with Guggenheim Investments, also uh, Active Index Advisors, that was acquired by Natixis, uh, e-investing acquired by E-Trade. You're like a serial ETF guy. Uh, how did you decide that this was the one for this particular time? Well, you know, I just went about my business, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm both an active investor. I think of myself as more of a Warren Buffett guy than a John Bogle guy, but I've been involved with uh, the indexing world and ETFs, uh, as you said, for a while. And uh, you know, one of the things about emerging markets is that traditional indexes are dominated by state-owned oil companies and banks, Petrobras, for example, which in Brazil, uh, right? In Brazil, which highlights the problem with these companies. They're they're often corrupt. They're very inefficient and. The story has always been about the consumer. Uh, for a long time, people asked me what emerging market ETF they should buy. Uh, I frequently told them to buy the emerging market consumer ETF, which wasn't a product I was involved with. But I realized that you know, just as my family used to go to Target four or five times a week, slow, I shouldn't say slowly, very quickly, uh, trucks started to show up in my driveway uh, and drop boxes off. And you know, four years ago, that might have been once a week. And now it's twenty times a week, and it was. You so could, it's your fault. It's, it's, it's fault. your fault that it's your fault that Target and all those uh, retailers are having a, a bit of a struggle. The, the we company, can only say that because Carol Masters out today. Because normally I'd be blaming her. Well, I'm not. and I love and I love your notion of, of of Buffett to to or Vogel to Buffett or Buffett to Vogel because in, in the last uh, annual letter from Berkshire Hathaway, Buffett was singing the praises of indexing. Um, I wonder when you talk about the indexing here, how does the change in the components within your ETF uh, happen over time? Well, it's rules-based. So, you know, this is a traditional index. We buy every emerging market internet company that has a market cap over $300 million. Uh, we're not picking or choosing, you know, what we think is going to be a winner or a loser. It's basically any company that is an emerging markets internet company that meets the market cap criteria, meets the liquidity criteria, gets included. And you do this, what, twice a year? You change the constituents or you rebalance the, the members in the portfolio? That's right. It's reconstituted and rebalanced uh, twice a year in June and December. So we just did uh, last Friday uh, our December rebalance. It picked up a few new names. There's been some uh, recent IPO activity in the space. So we, we uh, added, I think, three new companies. And the biggest holding right now is still Tencent Holdings, followed by Alibaba Group? Uh, that's right. The Alibaba and Tencent are the two largest companies in the space by a wide margin, and uh, they, you know, depending on how their their near term performance is, they're usually or always number one and number two in the portfolio. And let me just add, you know, the, the growth story here I, I believe is unprecedented. The average revenue growth for these companies in the last eight years has been over forty percent. And what's I think quite exciting, and I think perhaps a little bit underreported. A year ago, both of those companies were growing at about 40%, but in the most recent quarter, both of them reported 60% revenue growth. These are two of the largest companies in the world growing now at 60%, uh, up from 40% a year ago. So I, I think there's still a long way to go for these businesses. And just to mention, it's not just businesses in Asia, because you've got a holding in Mercado Libre, and this is a stock that is up 104% so far this year. So this is global. It, China's the biggest e-commerce market in the world, but yes, it's spreading. Yeah, Mercado Libre is the 
can be best thought of as sort of the Amazon and the PayPal uh, everywhere from Mexico to the tip of South America. Um, it's you know continued to grow uh, for a long time, uh, but it's spreading. India is currently the market that's growing the fastest. Uh, we hope to see some additional IPOs out of the Indian market. There's a uh, about 900 million people in India that have wow. traditional mobile phones that uh, will get their first computer and their first internet access for the first time uh, when they get access to a smartphone. And don't sleep on Amazon with $37 billion in international sales. Great stuff. Interesting stuff. Kevin Carter, EMQQ. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And the drive to the close brings us... Willie Dilwich is the Manager Director of Investment Strategies at Baird. And, uh, Willie, has your investment horizon changed in the last uh, 48 hours with the passage of the tax bill? Uh, no. It's, uh, we, we continue to um, enjoy you know, 2017 and um, you know, what it's given us and look forward to, to 2018 and expectations of probably a little more volatility and, and perhaps some more headwinds than we saw this year. Willie, I'm wondering if you could take out your charts for just a second, because I was looking at the S&P 500 and just checking on where it trades relative to its 50, 91, and 200-day moving average. And, of course, with the big run-up that we've seen, the actual S&P is way ahead. It's 3% higher than the 50-day. It is 5% above the 91-day and a whopping 8% above the 200-day. Does any of this matter, or should I just throw out all my old textbooks? Well, I wouldn't say that it doesn't matter. Um, I think... Yeah, yeah, the the rally is extended, um, particularly on a short term basis, and you've got got a lot of optimism. But but beneath it, and the the recurring theme um, that we've seen really really all of 2017 is that the path of least resistance has been higher. And so, um, yeah, we've gotten ahead of ourselves a little bit, but it's it's not enough to I don't think at this point to um, to argue for a, a, a dramatic reversal um, just because the the trend is a little extended. Um, when you look at this, I mean, do you, do you have different worries? You said more headwinds going forward. What do you expect those headwinds might look like? Well, there's three things we're, we're thinking about um, for next year. One of them is taking a little bit off the table, perhaps, in terms of earnings, um, you know, with the passage of the tax bill that that provides continued fuel for, for upside in terms of earnings growth next year. The other two that we're looking at, um, what happens with the Fed as they, um, as they continue to tighten and continue to um, be a little bit less accommodative to the market. Um, and then from a, a more technical perspective, um, you, you've got midterm elections to Typically, those are, are periods of uh, heightened volatility for, for the market. And so um, seeing how we will navigate um, the, the even more partisanship than we've seen this year, um, what will be interesting for next year. And then I think on top of that, 
how investors respond. Um, you know, we've had a, a year of very little volatility. Um, if we get even normal volatility returning in 2018, um, you know, it's un- uncertain at this point if, if people will, will take that as a longer-term opportunity or, or overreact um, and, and get much more cautious than they are right now. Well, explain the value line uh, geometric index <laughs> and why that is at least worth looking at. Yeah, so so the value line geometric index um, gives you a sense of what the median stock is doing. Um, it, it, it gets rid of um, the the cap weighted effects that are in the um, something like the S and P five hundred, and but yet it it is a little bit. Um, a little bit better in my mind than just looking at an advanced decline line. And so it um, gives you a, a cumulative look at what the median stock in the value line um, universe has done over time. And the important thing there is that um, over the course of 2017, we've broken out to, to new highs, broken through a, this, you know, this 20 years worth of resistance. And so it says that um, it's not just a few stocks that are driving this market. Um, the median stock is participating. The, um, it's a very broadly based rally. And so that speaks to, to strength beneath the surface. And that's really a tailwind as we go into um, what could be a, a, a bumpy 2018. Uh, does it speak to strength or does it speak to um, uh, just a lack of correlation and uh, buy anything? How bad could it be? I mean, you know, because there's there's an argument that says that 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 kind of movement of everything up, uh, good companies will bring companies good and bad. And it's really more about inflows and optimism um, and and, and blind faith than it is about finding good companies, separating them from bad companies, um, finding things that are working as opposed to following trends. Sure. Um, so, so I guess the, what, what I would say to that is that um, we, we've actually seen a decline in correlations this year. So um, it, it's not just a, a buy everything um, sort sort of market um, in, in the way that maybe it has been in the past. And so my short selling friends would disagree with that notion. <laughs> um, but you know, but but. But part of it is that you you do have you have broad strength, um, but but it's not. I, I think I, I would push back against the the idea that it is um, kind of the, this kind of in, in, passive in, index fund to sort of buy everything. Um, you know, maybe at the end of the day, it, it's that the the economy generally is. is is doing better, and so there's broad opportunity um, within the economy, and so that that is there, there's lots of areas that are able to participate in in that sort of rally. Any opportunities in the commodity sector? Um, you know, I think so. I think that's going to be an area that um, can, can see some uh, continued improvement um, next year. I think we're, we're seeing some. Some strength out of copper right now. Um, material, the material sector generally um, has, has been a, a leadership group for us recently, um, and, and that's, I, I guess, an, an area. If, if we're seeing broad economic growth, not just in the U.S. but but overseas as well, um, commodity-related areas should be able to do well. And you've got um, what, what was one of the big surprises for 2017: dollar weakness. Um, you know, that looks like that's continuing, and so that, that could be a tailwind for commodities going forward. All roads lead to Bitcoin. I heard that. Didn't you hear that, Tim, <laughs> somebody said? I'm not going there. I'm going to just let him speak for himself. I think maybe you should have some Long Island iced tea. Did you know, get the headline also that Goldman Sachs is said to be building a cryptocurrency trading desk? Yeah, that headline just crossed the Bloomberg Professional Service. So hold on to your bitcoins. 
Willie Delwich, thank you very much. Managing Director and Investment Strategist for Bear, joining us from Milwaukee. And he can be followed on Twitter at Willie Delwich. That's W-I-L-L-I-E-D-E-L-W-I-C-H-E. Well, the skills gap is a real thing. There are a lot of jobs out there that aren't getting filled because people don't know how to do the work underneath it. Uh, Adsalm is a company based uh, in Illinois. A CEO joins us right now, Lisa Wardell. And Lisa, um, when you guys look at the uh, – well, first tell us what your company does so we can get a sense of sort of why this is an issue for you. Yeah, sure. So AdTalum Global Education is really there to fill the skills gap. We have institutions and companies in medical health care education, professional education and technology and business, uh, both here and in Brazil. And so as you look at this and you look at the skills gap, where do you see it in a most sort of acute sense? I mean, so we've all heard some of the numbers, you know, 6 million jobs unfilled here in the U.S., et cetera. And I think it's really around the key areas where there's shortages, uh, both in, in, in employees and, and, and jobs that need to be filled. And then also uh, areas where technology really is changing and disrupting industries so much. Uh, so you know, to give you a couple of examples, when you think about medical and health care, we have one of the largest nursing schools in the company, uh, in the country, uh, Chamberlain University, uh, two medical schools, et cetera. Um, you're talking about maybe 100 to 130,000 physician shortage by 2025, and the Bureau of Labor Statistics would tell us about 500,000 nurses needed by 2020. So really looking at those industries where there is a mismatch of the number of employees out there that uh, companies and organizations can hire uh, with, uh, with those who are being educated, and those are the kind of gaps we're trying to fill. If you look at financial services as another example, and looking at that technology piece. There's so many requirements for new training and things like mobile payments and just in- increasing needs to upskill uh, in both new employees and employees that are already in the market. So for us, we have um, ACAMS, which is the Association of Certified Anti-Money Laundering Special- Specialists, which is a membership organization within our group at AdTalum. And what we do is really work with employers to make sure that we're helping them equip their staff and their team members as it relates to cybersecurity and fraud and, and crime prevention. So things in those areas. Lisa, uh, can you speak to, you mentioned nursing and, and medical. What does it cost? And just to mention that it used to be called DeVry Education, correct? That's right, DeVry yeah. Education Group. Okay. Yes. And DeVry University is part of our portfolio, and we rebranded to be able to align with all three of our segments, which is medical, health care, technology and business, and then professional education. That's right. Okay, so let's just focus on the medical uh, and health care issue. What sure. does it cost if you want to get a nursing degree and or, and or a doctor's degree? Yeah, sure. It really depends. Um, in terms of nursing, if you're talking about a, a uh, undergraduate... Like a, a Chamberlain a, uh, College of Nursing. Sure. 
Sure. Yeah. So um, a Bachelor of Science in, in nursing um, depends on where you are and what kind of credits you're bringing into the program. But we are pretty much aligned with a with a public, um, the public school, um, public university pricing across um, the organization. It also depends if you have employer. Uh, there are many employers who, uh, of course, want to supplement those types of tuitions because they're in need of, of new nurses in their hospital systems, et cetera. We also work with hospital systems to make sure that we're providing the students what they need as it relates to tuition. Well, give me a better sense of that. So, so you talk about price of, of a public school. It wouldn't mean anything from a, a Cal State Hayward or Cal East Bay to a University of California, Berkeley. Very different pricing there and a different kind of education as well. Just from where I'm sitting here in the Bay Area, I wonder what you're talking about in terms of pricing. And we're certainly, uh, we're certainly, I would say, middle of the road um, as it relates to pricing and tuition for our nursing uh, students. Many of them receive um, uh, both tuition assistance from us uh, as Ad Talum, as, as Chamberlain, as well as from the hospital systems that we work with who are looking for new nurses. And then, of course, we have large programs as it relates to one of the skills gaps um, pieces within nursing has to do with the doctorate programs and, and lots of hospital systems requiring their RNs, their registered nurses, to go back and get a Bachelor of Science in Nursing, as well as other doctorate um, de- uh, degrees. So for us, the family nurse practitioner degree uh, is becoming uh, a lot more popular, and that's one that nurses would go into, obviously, after getting um, their initial degree. So lots of need for um, doctorate and, and graduate uh, professional degrees within the nursing profession. All right. Well, I was just just to put a number to it because I was looking at the Association of American Medical Colleges. They say the median four year cost for medical school at a private institution is about two hundred and seventy eight thousand dollars for a public. It is a little bit more than two hundred thousand dollars. Is is the skills gap a, a being a, a sort of accentuated because people just cannot afford to go into debt and rack up this these bills in order to get those skills? Yes, on the medical side, absolutely. Um, The cost and the tuition um, and just cost of medical school school in general, yes, is definitely a uh, an issue, not just for us, but across the industry. But the real issue, I mean, obviously, if you go into medical school and you and you're right, most of them fall between two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and that you know obviously can be exacerbated by living uh, costs, et cetera, depending on where you go to school. but the real key and issue as it relates to medical school is what type of discipline you're going into. So if you're going into uh, medical school and you're, you're coming out and into orthopedic surgery or something like that, as an example, um, those, those salaries are going to be higher, obviously, um, earlier. For us uh, at the Ross University School of Medicine at, and at uh, the American University um, School of the Caribbean, we got to leave it there. I'm sorry. Lisa Wardell is the president and the chief executive of Ad Talum. They're based in Illinois. All about the skills gap in the job market. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.